1 Samuel chapter 14. Please open your Bibles. Been working on Samuel now for several weeks. We've seen a narrative that we find not only in Samuel but throughout all of sacred scripture as God deals with his people through a covenant relationship. We see God being faithful to the covenant and those that he's called and saved by grace being unfaithful to the covenant. It's no different here in chapter 14. Thankfully, throughout the storyline, we have these brilliant examples of God working miraculously in people's lives, bringing about people of great faith. Back in in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, we saw Hannah and the great faith that she had to cry out to God to make her barren womb give life, and it did. God was faithful. And the next couple chapters after that, we were introduced to Samuel, who we now know lived his entire life in submission to a holy God, discharging the office of prophet and judge, and sometimes as priest. And here in chapter 14, we get another individual that is highlighted amongst the rebellion and amongst the sin of King Saul, and it's his son, Jonathan. And we we find here, I I love Jonathan. I've always loved Jonathan. Um, And you will see throughout the whole story up to his very death, this was a man who should have been king. This was a man who loved God passionately and served him faithfully, and he was a man of great faith, and we'll see that today. And so... By God's grace, you will see, begin to see a man of faith who is Jonathan and a man who lacked faith in God and put faith in himself and his own wisdom, King Saul, and how they're juxtaposed and they're intended to be such. As we resume our story here in 1 Samuel 14, we find Saul and his kingdom in dire straits. The kingdom's young. It's a young kingdom. And yet the Philistines had invaded with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops. They deployed their forces in three companies throughout the land. And where do we find the king? The king is sitting in a cave with 600 men without swords and without spears. And he's not willing to go out and discharge the duties and claim the promise God had made to him as king that he would overthrow the Philistines. The situation again in Israel is bleak. You said this is a repetitive theme and it is oftentimes amongst God's people, but it's during these times of darkness, it's during these times when we find ourselves hiding in caves that God does his greatest work, that he raises up people like Hannah and Samuel and Jonathan and you and me and a church like this to be faithful in the midst of darkness, to be a people who live holy lives to bring honor and glory to God. It's in dark times that God is most magnified amongst those who truly love him and follow him. A brother of mine recently said to me, true believers are like tea. The hotter the water, the stronger they get. I love that. What we'll find this morning in the escapades of Jonathan is the divine power of God exercised through faith. We'll find that his father lacked trust in God. And as a result, made a mess of everything. We'll identify well with him. I know I do. By God's grace this morning, from our passage, we'll see three things. One, perhaps faith. 
You'll know what I mean in a minute. Two, the folly of misplaced faith. And three, the faithful one. Perhaps faith, the folly of misplaced faith. And number three, the faithful one. Point number one, perhaps faith. For those of you who have been following along closely, you'll remember that God made a promise to Saul in 1 Saul chapter 9, verse 16. Listen, God said to Saul, he, you, shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Jonathan believed the promise. Jonathan believed the promise that God had made to his father that his father would overthrow the Philistine power in the land. So while his father sat in a pomegranate cave outside of Gibeah with 600 swordless, spearless men as a rejected king, sitting with a rejected priest, Ahijah, Jonathan decided to exercise his faith and claim the promise that God had made to his father and go engage the enemy. Look at verse 1, 1 Samuel 14. We're told one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, this was not the foolish optimism of a young man hungry for glory, desiring his father's throne. This was a man who was truly fit to be king. This was a man of great faith in God, in the power of God and in the promises of God. Not in his own power, his own cunning, but in God's faithfulness to do what God said he would do. We often think of of faith being blind without reason or substance. I know the culture will paint it as such. But here we find that Jonathan clearly had a reasonable understanding, a foundation for his faith. Look again at verse 6. Jonathan says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. My beloved, if God is real and God is all-powerful and God is on your side and God so desires to do a great work through you or me or Jonathan or this church, then it doesn't matter if he has many or a few or one. He can save. He can do great work. With this right expectation, look at what it produced in Jonathan. Look at verse 6 again. He says, it may be, it may be that the Lord will work for us. And so Jonathan comes to a right conclusion. He says, God has the ability and has made a promise to deliver us from these uncircumcised people. And it may be, Jonathan says, it may be on this day that he'll use me and use this servant to do this great work. And so his faith, listen closely, it was not blind. It was extremely reasonable. It was based upon the power of God and the will of God. It was based upon the power of God to do a great work and the will of God to do that work if he so desired. In other words, Jonathan acknowledged God's power and God's freedom in the same breath. Did you hear that? God's power and God's freedom acknowledged by Jonathan in the same breath. He said, it may be that the God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe will work for us or maybe not. And Jonathan was okay with that. He was a man of faith. The NIV renders verse 14, I mean, chapter 14, verse six, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Perhaps if God ordains, perhaps if God wills, perhaps if it is pleasing to the Lord. Now, some of you will say, if you attach perhaps or maybe to prayer or to a request, then it lacks faith. I say not at all. Real faith, biblical faith, is not 
absolutely certain or dogmatic regarding details or ending. I mean, we know the end. We know eschatologically how it's going to play out. But I see arrogance in people's faith at times. I see prideful arrogance in prayer. The words, it may be, or perhaps, does not reveal a lack of faith. On the contrary, it acknowledges God's power to act according to his will, if he so desires. He's God. That's biblical faith. Why? Because biblical faith never dictates to God what should take place. Biblical faith never tells God what he ought to do. It never approaches the creator of the universe as a personal assistant or an errand boy telling him do this or that. Biblical faith comes under God. Biblical faith submits to God, recognizes his power, and then what he desires to do. Biblical faith recognizes its own ignorance when it comes to the will of God and the divine decrees that he set forth. And therefore, our plans and our prayers, just like Jonathan's, must always, must always include, thy will be done. Perhaps, Lord, if you desire to work through us this day, perhaps we ought to listen to James 4.15 when James says we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So Jonathan saying perhaps, or it may be, was not a lack of faith. It was a true biblical faith in the power of God and God's will to decide what he would do. And it led to right action. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. His power, his belief and faith in the power of God and the will of God led to right action. Verses 8 through 10, Jonathan said to his arm bearer, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. Verse 10, but if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So Jonathan exercises his faith by putting the final decision in God's hands. And it was gonna be based upon the God-driven response of the, of the Philistines as to whether or not Jonathan and his servants should go up. Verses 11 and 12, the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Show you a thing like the end of a sword. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. You talk about faith. The servant of Jonathan had great faith as well. Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. My beloved, it was not Jonathan's circumstances that he was making this decision. That would have been utterly foolish. It was God. It wasn't his faith in looking around at his servant or looking at his father hiding in his cave. It was his faith in God. So he climbs up this rocky precipice, and we'll go into detail on this on Wednesday, but getting down to this point and getting back up in and of itself was miraculous. He climbs up with his servant, completely exposed, with the only the only rational human expectation of death by sword when he gets to the top. But God is faithful. And Jonathan and his servant, after climbing the cliff, put 20 men to death. And in so doing, they caused such a commotion that word gets back to Saul. Saul then rallies the people and they go into battle. Even the Hebrews that were living amongst the Philistines took up their swords and they started to fight. And even the Hebrews that were hiding in the caves and the holes in Ephraim, they took up their swords and they started to fight. In other words, God worked salvation amongst his people. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. 
through the simple faith of one man, what seems seemingly impossible, truly against all human odds, God delivered his people. He shook the earth, he scattered the Philistines, he emboldened the Hebrews, and he saved his people from the hand of their oppressors in a single day through one man. Now many of us today will hear this and we'll say, well, that, you know, that was God supernaturally working in the Old Testament. That's what God used to do. It doesn't happen anymore. People who live by faith don't see God doing these supernatural things anymore. You know, Jesus Christ would argue against that. Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 17, listen, after being unable to cast out a particular demon, the disciples, they came to Jesus in private and they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. Because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so I ask you what I asked myself this week. Are we so different from Jonathan? I mean, was Jonathan some supernatural hero? Was he a supernatural freak? Enable, enabling him to do these things that seem impossible to us? Or did he just have the faith of a mustard seed? And because he did, he was able to do that which seemed impossible. He believed he had faith in the power of God and God's plan to save his people. He had simple faith in God to do a work through him, not because of Jonathan, but because of the power of God through Jonathan. He had faith in the promises that God made to restore this broken place and make all things new in Christ. He had faith that God would change the hearts and minds of those that he called and saved by grace to redeem mankind through the work of Christ on the cross. I don't believe that Jonathan was a glory-starved young man seeking his father's throne, nor do I believe he was a man of super faith. I believe he was just like you and me. He was a man who loved God, and he put his faith and his trust in this God whom he loved. He actually believed the promises. He believed the Torah. He believed the prophets. He believed Samuel. And because of that, he lived in accordance with what he believed. He believed Joshua 23.10 when God said, one of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he has promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. One of you will route a, a thousand. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Why? Because love begets faith. The greater your love for God, the greater your faith. The greater your understanding of God's love for you in Christ, the greater your faith. And the greater your faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, you will hear Christ and you will believe that nothing that God has ordained for you to do in this life is impossible. Nothing God has ordained for you to do in this kingdom, in this faith, is impossible. No matter how impossible it may seem given your circumstances. So I ask you, before we go on to our next point, are you exercising your faith? It's a simple question. It's rhetorical in nature. Please don't answer now. Are you exercising your faith? Or are you like King Saul hiding in the pomegranate cave at the, at the outskirts of Gibeah, which was away from the battlefield, by the way, waiting for the storm of life to pass? Saints, it'll never pass. We live in the midst of darkness. 
There is warfare going on. So if you've entered the cave and you say you'll come out when things settle down, it's never going to settle down. You have been anointed, if you know Christ, by the Holy Spirit. You have been called to live a life of great faith. That's your calling. That's my calling. As a believer, you have been anointed to share the gospel of grace with the lost, to open your mouth so they might hear, they might call out, they might believe, and they might repent. To make disciples in the faith to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those around us, to grow in holiness. So I ask you, are you setting plans before the living God, saying, Lord, if you so desire, perhaps you will work in this way? Plans that seem impossible. If you only set that before you, which you know you can do, then it takes very little faith, if any faith at all. Are you setting those plans before you and asking, as Jonathan did, perhaps... Lord, you'll act on my behalf today, perhaps, perhaps. So we see first the power of God exercised through faith in Jonathan. Please don't lift Jonathan up and say superhero, super saint. It was the work of God through Jonathan in faith. Faith was the vehicle. Point number two, let's flip the other side of the coin and let's look at his father, King Saul, and the folly of the man who was king. Jonathan should have been king, never sat in the seat. His father, who was king, lived a life with faith, but not in God, but in himself. In his own wisdom, in his own power. Point number two, the folly of misplaced faith. In contrast to our would-be king, Prince Jonathan, we find King Saul chosen, anointed, and empowered by God to be king over God's people, living like a faithless pagan. I mean, he was to be God's representative on earth, governing and overseeing and shepherding God's people and his actions time and time again. And we see it all the way through up to his death as well. We see faithlessness in God. He relied upon his own wisdom. He evaluated his circumstances. He listened to counselors he ought not to have been listening to. And the consequences again and again and again are catastrophic. So before we jump on Saul too hard, this is the default of every human heart. This is where we all start. We all start not trusting God. We all start not hearing God's word not submitting to God's plan. We all start in our own wisdom and our own power and our own strength thinking we know how to do it better. Last week in chapter 13, as Pastor Kurt was preaching, Jonathan's given a thousand troops and he goes and he defeats the Philistines at Geba. A thousand troops. King Saul takes 2,000 troops and he goes to Michmash and he can't even keep his troops together. They start to flee and fly across the Jordan and go into caves and holes. He can't even keep them together. And so what does he do? You know what he did. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He takes an unlawful sacrifice. He offers it to, to God, and he, his lineage loses the throne. He scuttles his own name as king. And then in chapter 15, going against the Amalekites... He's told specifically to put every single one, man, woman, child, to death. To not take any of the spoils of war. But instead, he spares the Amalekite king Agag's life. 
and he rationalizes it by blaming it on the people. We're told in 21, the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Was it me? It was them. And besides, they did it for a good reason. It was for you, God. What was the cost of that? He was going to lose his own throne. So in chapter 13, he loses the future of his throne. In chapter 15, he loses the throne. Of course, we know that'll be taken by David. And then here, in chapter 14, we open up our storyline with this now rejected king hiding in a cave, unwilling to exercise the promise God made to him back in chapter 9. Jonathan faithfully goes out into battle. Saul looks around at his circumstances. Most of the men have fled. The 600 that are with him, they don't have spears and they don't have swords. They don't even have weapons. And so what does Saul do? He does exactly what I would have done in that situation. He said, I've got, I've got 30,000 chariots and 6,000 fighting men, and they're all armed, and I've got 600 guys here that are left in this cave. I don't have swords or spears. We're going to stay put. Maybe they'll just go away. We're just going to stay here until something happens. He had no faith in God to save them by a few, only by many, and I would argue many more in his mind than God needed. The battle stirred. The Philistines begin to flee. And so Saul calls out counsel from Ahijah. We'll look at his line too on Wednesday. He calls him out to give counsel right in the middle of their dialogue. We're told in verse 19, look with me, that while Saul was talking to the priest, this is getting counsel from God, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. He disengages from seeking to know what God's will was for him at that point in time and spontaneously moves. This is what we see of Saul. Not waiting, not listening, not submitting. Rashness. And then, one of the most rash things we see in this chapter, he puts a curse, an oppressive oath upon his soldiers who are engaged in battle and victory over the Philistines. Look at verse 24. This was not from God. Saul says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Notice he says, And I am avenged, not God, on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. It was a forced fast on his fighting men who were exhausted as they're chasing the Philistines. Victorious in battle, he says, No one can eat. The contrast at this point between the saving work of God and the destructive work of man cannot be more extreme. In verse 23, we're told that the Lord saved Israel that day. In the next verse, in verse 24, in the middle of God saving his people, Saul says the men of Israel had been, it says the men of Israel had been hard-pressed by Saul. God's working to save his people, and Saul is working to oppress the people. even in the very act of God graciously saving them, we find Saul, the king, working against God. Now his rashness in calling a curse on all those who dared eat before the day was done brought about two horrible consequences. First, the unexpected death sentence of his own son, Jonathan. We'll come back to that in a minute. But secondly, we're told that when evening, had, had, evening came, the, the curse had been lifted 
because they were able to eat. The people were so famished, they started killing the oxen and, and the animals with the blood in it and eating them strictly against Leviticus 19.26. Instead of bleeding the animal out and eating it properly, they were committing sin. And so Jonathan rightly says in verse 29, my father has troubled the land. What Saul had done had brought trouble on the land. Saul was in a persistent pattern, listen closely, of doing things his own way. As he saw fit, he refused to listen to Samuel, God's ordained prophet. He refused to wait upon the Lord when he was told to wait. He refused to follow God's written decrees as described specifically in the Torah. He refused to worship God as God called him to worship. He was living as God. He came up with his own decrees, exercised his own rules of worship, which became burdensome to himself, his family, and the entire nation. So much misery. And it was all self-induced. And we we say, what a fool. And yet I I was thinking about the the degree to which I suffer in my life, and most of my misery is self-induced too. I bring it upon myself. Such a fool. Not hearing God, not submitting to God, not walking in simple faith according to the teachings of my Lord, and it brings misery upon me, my family, and the church. Saul refused to live by faith in God. He refused to submit to God. And we see again and again the results are tragic for him, for his family, and certainly for the nation of Israel. So what was the fundamental difference between Jonathan and Saul? I mean, certainly the Holy Spirit wants to bring these two up and juxtapose them for us that we might see. One walked by faith and the other walked by sight. One walked by faith in God and the other one walked by what they would see and then did according to what they thought best. Saul made decisions based upon his visible visible circumstances according to his wisdom. Whereas Jonathan made decisions based upon the truth of God. He made decisions based on what God said. God said this, therefore it's true, therefore I'll go in that direction. God said he'd deliver us from the hands of the Philistines. God is faithful and true. It must be true, I'm going to go in that direction. Jonathan had learned, and not, I doubt because of his father, maybe his time with Samuel, but uh, Jonathan learned to trust in God. He learned to simply trust in the teachings of God the Father. Saul had learned to distrust God. He used religion like magic. He treated God like some genie in the sky that he could rub the ark and get him to come out. Saul made decisions in life based upon his own understanding and we know that his paths were anything but straight. Now I don't want us to be fooled. Saul had faith, it just wasn't in God. Everyone has faith. Every single person has faith. Every single person puts their faith and their trust in someone or something. It may be themselves, it may be a spouse, it may be their children, it may be your job, it may be your portfolio, it may be your good looks and your great health. If you're an atheist, you put your faith in science, the material world, and the empirical method. If you're an agnostic, you put your faith in knowing certainly you can't know anything absolutely certainly, right? If you're a religious folk, you put your faith in doing good works, hoping that if you do enough good works and not too many bad works, that God won't punish you and let you in. Saul was no different. He put his faith in his own ability to examine things, to try to manipulate God, use a little bit of religion, and then make choices independent of God's word, independent of what God said. 
Jonathan, on the other hand, he did not put his faith in science or good works or his powers of discernment. He put his faith in the God that he loved. He put his faith in a God that loved him, spoke truth, and revealed himself as being trustworthy. So you want to see how reasonable, how rational Jonathan's faith was? He put his faith in the power of a God which is limitless, the wisdom of God which is infinite, and the promises of God which are unbreakable. Limitless power, infinite wisdom, unbreakable promises. That's the most reasonable, rational, rational faith, trust you can put in anyone or anything. And that's the living God. Jonathan understood Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. To trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Jonathan understood centuries before the apostle Paul would write it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said, live by faith and not by sight. Why? Verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We often forget that the degree to which we submit to God and follow Christ in faith will we'll have temporal consequences, but there will be a judgment time as well when your life as a believer will be adjudicated and evalu- evaluated. How much better to stand before God as Jonathan rather than Saul? How much better to come before God as one who exercised the faith of a mustard seed and moved mountains than someone who puts their faith in their own wisdom, their own discernment, their own strength, their own power, their own portfolio? So the question really for us is, how do we live like Jonathan and not like Saul? How do we end up standing before a holy God with with the beautiful feet that we saw this morning from Romans chapter 10, a life of faith that we see in Jonathan and not like Saul? How do do we do that? I mean, me simply pointing these differences out and telling you there, go have more faith. It's not the answer. Last point, you ready? Still with me? Do we need to stand up and... Stretch a little bit, you all right? Point number three, the faithful one. The faithful one. Not knowing his father's decree. Not knowing that Saul had said no eating until the Philistines are put to death. Jonathan took his staff. He was in a forest and there was honey. The imagery is fantastic. And there's honey everywhere. And they're famished. The entire day has been long. They've been in battle. They've been pursuing. And he sees honey and he takes his staff and he dips it in the honey and he tastes it. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, Your father, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. They were weak. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better, listen closely, verse 30. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil their enemies that they, that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Saul had dis- decreed a destructive oath 
and diminish the magnitude of the victory against the Philistines and the magnitude of the glory that would be given to God by his oath. Now, when Saul inquired that evening as to whether or not they should continue to pursue the Philistines into the night, he got no answer. He got no answer from God. So believing sin to be the culprit, he had lots drawn. He wanted to see who was responsible for God's silence, and to Saul's dismay, Jonathan's lot was selected. Look at verse 43. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Now, you would expect it to be something catastrophic, right? Tell me what you have done. Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. What? I tasted a little honey with the staff. Here I am, O king, I will die. Once again, Jonathan's faith is magnified. With a clear conscience and a complete trust in God, he says, here I am, Father. Here I am, King. I will die. Because he had heard the decree after he had taken the honey. Now listen closely. The one used by God to save his people, the one used by God to bring salvation to Israel is sentenced to die. For what? For breaking the laws of God? Certainly not. For knowingly violating the king's decrees? No again. Saul had issued a prohibition without divine authority and made it obligatory upon all the people by solemn oath. It was an oppressive decree. Did he have the right to issue it as king? Yes. Was it foolish? Yes. The people had conscientiously obeyed the command, but Jonathan had transgressed without knowledge. And for this Saul was going to punish him with death. He was going to kill his firstborn son in order to keep his oath, in order to save face before the people, in order to, to show God how serious he was as king. Who knows? But look at verse 44. Saul said to Jonathan, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die. Jonathan, the words are extraordinary. The foolishness of Saul's misplaced faith now hits a fever pitch as Saul is about to put his own son to death. His firstborn son, a man of great faith, of noble character, the one who God used to save the people that day. And he was going to do it for breaking a foolish, ill-fated oath he instituted. Now he's king. That means he has the power to execute and he has the power to pardon. He could have pardoned his son. He's king. And he foolishly chooses death. But the story is fantastic. The people oppose him. They not only pronounce Jonathan innocent because he broke the king's command unconsciously, but they rightly credit Jonathan, not Saul, for the salvation of Israel that day. They rightly credit God using Jonathan. Look at verse 45. It's fantastic verse I mean you want some great light in this narrative right the people said to Saul shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel far from it as the Lord lives there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die it's fantastic 
the people resist the foolishness of their king and they pay a ransom. Something. Everybody speculates what it was. Animals, money, something. But they give something to King Saul to save Jonathan's life, to spare the son's life, to spare the Savior's life. What we find in the narrative is the key to our hope as well. Our hope of being spared the wrath of the king. Our hope of living a life of faith in God rather than ourselves. A thousand years after this mini narrative, we have another storyline that plays out on a much larger screen between another king and a king's son. In this larger narrative, the son was innocent as well. And we can go so far as say he was completely innocent living his whole life in complete and total perfect submission to the laws of his father, the king. And yet he too was sentenced to die unjustly. When brought before his accusers, like Jonathan, he did not fight back or even make a case for himself. He simply said, it is as you say. In other words, here I am, I will die. But this time, this time, rather than the people coming before the judgment seat, and crying out for this Savior to be ransomed, they said something quite different. The entire crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Their Savior they wanted killed. And their Savior, the one who came to set them free from the power of sin and death and faithlessness died. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, died a sinner's death. Why? Why? Because God, our king, had made an oath as well. You say, what? Wait a minute. Jonathan was sentenced to die because his father, the king, had made an oath. Jesus Christ is sentenced to die because God, our king, our father, made an oath as well. I said, what are you talking about? I haven't derailed. Stay with me, please. Our king had made an oath as well, but not rash like King Saul. God had made an oath with Abraham that he would make a people for himself, a holy people set apart to bring him honor and glory forever. God had made an oath that he would take a people most undeserving and give them life eternal to both receive and give glory to him forever and ever. The problem is that no such people existed. All mankind had sinned and fallen woefully short of the righteousness and glory of God. And so God the king, in order to keep his oath, ransomed his own son for us, to save us. Not by many, not by few, but by one. One man, Jesus Christ. You know and I know because of our sins, we are the ones that belonged up on that cross We are the ones that deserve the full wrath of the king because we've broken God's laws hundreds of thousands of times. And the only way for a just God to save a sinner like you or a sinner like me was to use his son as a substitute, to kill his son on the cross, our savior, Jesus Christ. So Christ died in our place in order to save us from the wrath of this king for breaking the king's laws. Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to impart to us faith, faith to the faithless, that we might live glorious lives in him. I love the idea 
that God died for, that Christ died for my sins, that I might not be condemned. And I equally love the idea that in his death and resurrection, he imparts to us power, righteousness, real faith, not mealy mouth Sunday morning faith, not faith on a Wednesday when you pray. I'm talking about daily faith, hourly faith, where we live as God has called us to live as a holy people. Certainly we live in darkness. I mean, we're surrounded by Philistines. And yet I grieve, I think the church is in the pomegranate cave. I digress. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live how? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear that, saints? Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I don't live according to my ways and my wisdom and my power. I don't live like that anymore. He said, Christ lives in me and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me, who died for me, who was crucified for me, who was not ransomed. If you know Christ and you know the love that God has for you in Christ, if you know the love that Christ has for you, if you know how much God loved you and gave himself up for you, then your faith will grow. You cannot grow in the love of God and not grow in faith. And as your faith grows, the seemingly impossible becomes possible. All the things that you look at and say, I cannot overcome this sin. I cannot overcome this battle. Foolish talk. For the believer. I'm going to make this imminently practical with these last few minutes. I want to give you four things that I drew from the text. We see the faith of Jonathan. We see the the lack of faith of King Saul. We see God's mighty work in Christ to impart that to us. Now, a couple things, a few things for you to say, okay, how can I increase my faith? I want to have the faith of a mustard seed. That's a glorious prayer. If you have the faith of mustard, you can move a mountain give you a few here how you can live a life in such a way that when you stand before God he will be pleased with the life that you live first know and grow in the power and promises of God in Christ in other words know what you believe know what you believe Jonathan knew God's power he knew God's love and he knew God's promises he knew them he believed them Grievously, I believe much of our lack of faith is a result of biblical ignorance, and I don't say that meanly, but I believe that our faith is weak because we don't even know what the Bible says about this powerful, loving, omniscient, providential God. Of course it's weak. If we do not know him well, if we do not love him passionately, if we don't know the promises... Jonathan knew what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9, that God would deliver him from the Philistines. He knew this. Not knowing well the power of God and the promises of God as delineated in the word of God. Many Christians aren't living by what they believe to be true because they don't know what they believe to be true in the first place. 
But we must grow in our understanding of God. We must grow in our love for him. We must grow in our understanding of his power. We must grow in understanding of the promises that he's made to you, to the church, to the kingdom. Or we will, like Saul, we'll be like the world, we'll look like the world, we'll live like the world, we'll think like the world. Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not, stop it. He said instead, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Know God, know the love of God, know the promises of God, know the power of God, know it. Meditate on it. Number one, got that? Jot that down in your notes, number two. Number two, get rid of those things in your life that pull you away from knowing God. If the first thing is to know God, then get rid of the things that take you away from knowing him. So what things might those be? Saints, if God is, God is at work in us, we bear the responsibility in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit to get rid of those things that pull us away from him, that diminish our faith, that decrease our love, that decrease our passion, to get rid of those things that hold us back from truly living a life of faith. John Piper rightly describes our faith walk as, quote, wartime lifestyle. Wartime lifestyle. Jonathan and his servant, when they scaled that, that cliff, that precipice to get to the top to encounter the garrison, the Philistine garrison, they took only what they needed, a sword or two and a shield. Soldiers, of which you are one, cannot afford extra gear in the battlefield. And neither can we in this most holy of kingdom conflicts. That means persistent sin must be mortified. The sin that you continue to play with and deal with, you must commit it to prayer. You must confess it to God. You must confess it to a brother and sister. Come have someone come alongside you and kill the sin. It's keeping you from fighting well, even though you've convinced yourself it is not. All those things in life that compromise our allegiance to the living God, every single thing in life, the good and the bad, Distractions, so many distractions, so much noise. How much silence do you get before the living God? How much daily silence do you get before the living God? How much time are you able to sit and be still and know he's God? So much noise in our lives. How about the hobbies? I want, I want to get, I hit the hobbies briefly. How about the things that, the, the hobby itself isn't sinful, but you have an inordinate attraction to the hobby. And the hobby's taking a lot of time, and it's consuming your thoughts, and it's, it's consuming your weekends. How about those destructive relationships that you have known for a long time you need to cut off, and you don't? Those relationships that you ought not be engaged in. Maybe a dislike, maybe a defriending. How about our obsession with work? I mean, we live in a time and a place in Silicon Valley where work is used, I think, as the primary excuse for a lack of faith in God. We're not going to stand before God and say, I'm sorry, I was too busy working. He won't hear it. 
We must do what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, Jonathan heard simply the word of God and he obeyed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Listen, we're told, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Run the race well. Run it. I had a chance, Brandon's doing, Josh, he's doing a little track. We went out to the track field at SoCal High School and the high school was practicing. And you know what I didn't see? I didn't see any runner out there with his backpack and a helmet and, and combat boots and long pants. They had shoes, socks you could not see, shorts and a light shirt. Why? They were running. They were running. Says, how much do we put on every morning? How much stuff do we put on that inhibits our running the race well. Start your day off, taking all that stuff off. Take it off in prayer. Take it off in the word of God. Take it off and then run that day. Number three, do not be ruled by your circumstances. Be ruled by God. All right, know God. Get rid of the garbage. And don't be ruled by your circumstances. Be ruled by God and his faithfulness. Too often, I, I look around at my circumstances and I am so much like Saul and I think to myself, there's no way. I condemn the plan before I even step foot in it. I think there's no way, no hope for me, no way I can overcome this sin. No way I can conquer that enemy. No way I can achieve that goal. There's no way. And just like Saul, I find myself sitting in the pomegranate cave with 600 swordless men, and I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try. I, you, we must remember what the Bible says. He who is in you, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We can say infinitely greater. Like Jonathan, we must say to ourselves, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf today. Perhaps. Not only does God have the power and the means to overcome your most difficult circumstances, saints, listen closely, because I know if you're like me, you get in those situations, you think there's no hope. Not only does he have the power and the means to do it, but he is providentially sovereign over those circumstances. You're not in the crisis by chance. He is God in your circumstances, the good and the bad. That means they belong to him as well. And that means not only do you have the power to get through, but you have the power to thrive in the midst of them. That means you can scale those steep cliffs and you can slay the enemy when the odds are 20 to 1. Not because of your power or strength or wisdom, but because of the faith of God. All right, lastly, probably the hardest one. You ready? You got to act. You have to act on your faith. Faith wisely exercised increases faith. Faith wisely exercised increases our faith. Once you know the truth, you must walk in the truth. You must exercise that which you say you believe. Jonathan exercised what he said he believed. Now, if you're like me and like Saul, we become experts at finding excuses as why we won't step out and act in faith. My, my great excuse is too busy, too tired, too ill-equipped, wrong time in my life, too much to lose. 
If you want to grow, you must act. That means this. I'll make it simple for myself as well. If your brother has a need and you can meet it, meet the need. Don't go and pray about it. The Bible says meet the need. Meet the need. We always say, well, let me pray about it first, and then weeks pass and months pass. The need is still there. You can still meet it, and it's not being met. If your brother has a need, the Bible says, and you can meet it, meet the need. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel of grace, open your mouth and share the gospel of grace. Be bold in the testimony of our Lord. When God makes you aware of spiritual gifts and talents, when you become aware of them, use them to grow the church. That's why they gave them to you. God gave you those gifts that you might use them to edify and grow the church. Intentionally look for opportunities to serve. Intentionally look for people who need to be served and then serve. Seek out people to disciple and then make a disciple. It is fundamental to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations starting here in Jerusalem. These are all things you know. These are all things that I know. But knowing them is different than acting upon them. And that means we act in faith, even if we don't know the details or the end. One pastor said, living by faith means we step out before we know how it will all turn out. We step out on faith before we know how it's going to turn out. If you are, if you're the type of person that needs to know the details and the outcome before the end, you'll never act on your faith. You will not. Faith doesn't work like that, and neither does God. God wants you to put trust in him for the details and the outcome. He says, just follow me. Hear my voice and follow me. He wants you to trust in him completely, implicitly, and to follow his son. We all start like Saul, every one of us. We all put a misplaced faith in our own power, our own wisdom, our own strength, our own friends. By God's grace, and it will be by his grace only, he has saved you out of that most destructive path. He's revealed his holiness to you. He's revealed the depth of your sin. He's revealed revealed his son, Jesus Christ, as your savior. He has enabled you to believe. He's given you faith to believe, to repent and follow Christ. And now, in Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a life of radical faith. Loving God and submitting to him in all that you do to live more like Jonathan and less like Saul. So I'll give you a charge and then I'll close in prayer. I want you to go, my beloved, and live as God has called 
and equipped you to live, to fulfill the oath that he made to Abraham, to have a holy people set apart to bring himself honor and glory. Live as a people who live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved you and gave himself up for you. Live in light of the cross. Live in light of the sacrifice. Live in light of the ransom that was made for you and for me and all who repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that these words of yours are heard. I'm thankful that they're your words. I could not say these things in good conscience knowing how little faith I have. But I know that you can teach these things and reveal them because of the great faith of your son. Stir in us, Lord, a deep passion that perseveres, a right hope in your power and your promises. Father, the times, they're dark now. I fear many of us have hidden ourselves away in caves. I pray that would not be the case for myself and my brothers and sisters here in your church throughout the world. I pray that we would rejoice in the great work of Jonathan, the work that you did through him. I pray, Lord, that it would be our desire to stand before you on that day when you open up the books and our life is completely exposed and you would find us to be people of faith. Not in our power, our wisdom, or our creativity, but in yours. Bless us with this, I pray, so that your name might be magnified here in Cambrian Park, in San Jose, in this country and throughout the world. Bless us with this, I pray, so that Jesus Christ the true king, the one who was ransomed for us, might be lifted up on high. I thank you for those that you've gathered here this morning to hear this most difficult teaching. By your grace, enable us to hear and submit to it in Christ's name. Amen.